So we're sort of I'm going to try and do today is trace the evolution of agrarian relations in the Nepal Bihar borderlands from about the 16th century up until the sort of contemporary era of globalization. So I'll be looking at the transformation as well as the reproduction of some of the older economic formations and their relationships with capitalism. And this is one of the kind of contradictions in the era of globalization. You still have large areas of Nepal, particularly in the Terai Belt, where you've got very rigid feudal mode of production on the ground. And I'm going to try and understand what is the nature of feudalism in Nepal, what is the nature of capitalism, and how the two economic formations interact. But most interestingly, what I'm trying to do here is identify how some of the political economic changes within the economic system on the ground in Nepal can be related to some of the recent political crisis in the country, particularly related to the ethnic-based mobilisation. So I'll be looking not only at um, the economics of the agrarian system on the ground, but also how this links up to the larger scale to national level politics. So the backdrop is, of course, uh, as many of you may know, Nepal has undergone almost a year, well, about nine months of quite severe ethnic unrest, particularly down focused on the Tara and Madesh region. This is the ongoing protest, but the ground is essentially in a deep-rooted disillusionment with the new constitution, which was passed in September, and perceived ethnic discrimination by the plains, uh, people who live in the plains. These are two primary ethnic groups. These are the Madeshi community, these are the people who, who, are, who speak North Indian dialects such as Maithili and Bhojpuri, and who live on both sides of the Nepal-India border. And within Nepal, they're known as the Madeshi community. And then the second group is, of course, the Terai indigenous groups. So there's groups such as the Rajmanshi, the Bantar, the Daru, who have been living in the plains of Nepal for centuries. And there's a very, very strong disillusionment over a new constitution, which is seen to be reinforcing the dominance of the hill upper caste and the hill elite. So I'm not going to go into a lot of detail over this issue itself, over the actual the ethnic protests over the last... Uh, nine months. What I'm going to focus on instead is the political economy of this region. Now, when understanding issues to do with identity in Nepal, there's often a significant neglect to try and understand what's the actual economics and political processes underlying this. There's, so there's two different discourses. One of them, there's a perception that a class approach cannot comprehend a more complex category of identity. Secondly, there's a sort of derision of ethnic movements, including some of the kind of so-called leftists in Nepal, a derision of ethnic movements in Nepal as being led by local landed elites. And in fact, in reality, this is something much more complex. And then another issue which is also completely neglected is the ecological context. I mean, the Terai and Madesh region is an area which is entirely dependent on agriculture. It's very, very limited industrial base, very heavily natural resource-based economy. In this area, this region has seen an agrarian crisis over the last 20 to 30 years. However, issues to do with ecological stress, to do with climate change, very, very rarely figure in the political discourse in Nepal. This is something which remains restricted to aid land and to the donor world, but it very, very rarely enters into political discourse. So I'm going to try and bring together some of these political, economic and ecological changes and try and use this as a, kind of, as a vehicle to try and understand some of the underlying ethno-political issues in Nepal. So essentially... What I'm trying to do is understand how changes in the ecological and economic context, including struggles over land, water and other resources, set the backdrop against which unique political alliances and inequalities take place. So I'm not denying that identity is important as a category on its own. Identity is still important as a, as a 
vehicle for ethnic mobilization. However, I'm going to try and argue that it doesn't merge as a political tool in particular economic, political economic junctures. So I'll follow essentially Louis Althusser's approach to Marxism, which sees a very tenuous relationship between the economic base on the one hand and the political ideological superstructure on the other. So in other words, ideological processes such as identity politics emerge in a particular political economic context, although they can at times be out of sync with each other and out of sync with processes in the economic sphere. So what I'm going to argue is that some of the periodic shifts between class-based politics and ethnic and caste-based politics in both the Terai and the adjoining parts of Bihar can be traced to political economic realities. So this study is an amalgamation of multiple sources and it follows essentially about 11 years of immersive fieldwork in the rural plains of Nepal and in Bihar over the border. But the primary data sources are two very large surveys which we did in 2013 and 2015 on both sides of the Nepal-India border and also data from a series of qualitative interviews with 127 women farmers in Madhubani in India and Saptari and Danusha in Nepal which we did in 2014. And then we also have a very large System 51 focus groups and interviews in both studies which covered both agricultural labour, climatic change and political change in the region. Now, a large chunk of this is based also on some of my own PhD research that I did in 2007, but I have brought in a lot of insights for a number of projects which we've been coordinating at the International Water Management Institute in Kathmandu. So I have to thank like, a really outstanding research team. It's been a privilege to work with such a fantastic team on the ground and developed a really fantastic data set we hope we can use for many years to come. So, um, to give an insight into the region, so... This study is concerned essentially with two overlapping social formations. So the first is Nepal, of course. Nepal is very much it's political, a relatively recent, when I say recent, since the late 18th century, a relatively pol recent political amalgamation of diverse cultural, ecological and agrarian zones unified under a centralised state formation. And then Mithilancho, which is essentially a cultural as well as an agroecological region, which is split between both Nepal and Bihar to the south. Now both of these social formations are home to a very, very complex mode of production. In fact, multiple modes of production, both peasant, capitalist, and feudal, all articulated in a kind of complex unity. Now many of the economic and ecological changes of the last two decades have actually swept this entire region. So for this reason, I'm not going to just look at the Tarai itself, I'm going to look at the whole region in the borderland between both Bihar and the Tarai districts of Nepal. Because I think it's impossible to understand the changes underway by just looking at the Tarai. You've got to look at the broader region, the broader social formation. Now, the Tarai, this area can be divided, what I might call Mithilamchal, this cultural region, can be, divided, could be divided into two primary parts. So you've got um, the kind of core caste Hindu heartland, which lies approximately between the Koshi and the Bhagmati Basin. And this is an area where Maithili language is essentially the mother tongue. It's a very strong caste-based uh, social formation. And the Nepali part of this is the kind of Madeshi area. The Madeshis essentially are the, the Maithili-speaking, well, Maithili and Bhojpuri-speaking um, caste Hindus who live on the Nepali plains. <coughs> but there's also a significant tribal area, as I noted before. So you've got this sort of Adivasi belt, which is essentially in the former, the area, like this area, if you look about, Several centuries ago, this was largely forested, this area. And this area was mostly tribal. And today, these are still areas which are predominantly tribal. 
although as you see there's been a lot of demographic change with migration from the hills and from India. But this is, in terms of the actual social formation itself, I've kind of divided it into these two main areas. Now I'm going to start off by looking at the origins of the current sort of agrarian feudalism which you see today. And to do this you need to go back to the, to the 16th century essentially. So in this kind of past Hindu heartland, in this area between the Bhagmati and the Koshi River, feudalism essentially had its origin in centralised state formations and the tax collection hierarchy, as well as caste, the caste system and caste authority. So in the Nepal Terai region, in the caste Hindu heartland, this area was, uh, until around about the 15th, 16th century, was mostly home to sort of small petty kingdoms, somewhat autonomous, but somewhat hierarchical as well. This gave way to more centralised state formations following the expansion of the Sen Kingdom, which is around about the 16th, 17th century. And then in North Bihar to the south, this was of course under the sways of the Mughal Empire and its tributary states, so this included, for example, the Darbhanga Kingdom. So the primary landownership, the primary landowning elite in this period were essentially the intermediaries in the tax collection hierarchy. And they were the ones who you know, would appropriate tax from the peasants and channel it to the centre. And in the process, they, they themselves became enriched by taking a share of the surplus. Now, a much more rigorous tax collection apparatus was introduced from the late 18th century. The Gorkhali Kingdom of Nepal, which is essentially the, the founders of the present state of Nepal, uh, on the one hand, and to the south, of course, the, uh, there was the British colonial project. And both of these new regimes essentially adopted the Mughal-era tax collection system. And they essentially propped up the earlier tax collecting class and considerably increased their local economic and political power. <coughs> now, on the forest frontier, on this sort of Adivasi tribal belt to the north, there was a somewhat different history. So this was an area where it was essentially a sort of tribal mode of production which was dominant. And this retained relative autonomy until around about the late 18th century and the rise of the House of Gorkha. So this was a mode of production which was dominated mostly by shifting cultivation, semi-nomadic livelihoods and very limited private property rights for land or often clan-based ownership of land. Now this system has essentially died out entirely in the Nepal Thai today, although it does persist in some areas that this is a shifting cultivating, these are some farmers engaged in shifting cultivation in the North Bengal Doers region on the border with Bhutan and India. So this is in the sort of Churia range, right, the start of the Himalayas. So there are some pockets where this kind of mode of production does persist based upon small clan-based units of production. However, in Nepal this has entirely died out. So what was the process which saw the end of this economic system? Well, under the state interventions following the Gorkhali conquest, there were several interventions which took place. So the first was the distribution of land grants. Large areas of forest land were given out to elites from the hills to clear and set up as sort of independent fiefdoms. Then there was also the clear, they encouraged the clearing of forest land and the immigration of people from India, as well as other parts of the Terai, to set up new estates. This was all aimed at maximising the tax revenue for the regime. And now in this context, of course, many of the shifting cultivation-based livelihoods died out entirely. But that wasn't enough to completely subjugate this mode of production to feudalism. They also had to create an elite within the tribal social structure. So they essentially created a landlord class within the clan-based units of production, breaking the distributive mechanisms within this uh, economic formation. So the Ranas themselves, the Rana regime which started from the 18th century in particular, 
order. They were somewhat pragmatic when it came to issues of ethnicity and ethnic power. So they were not particularly supporting any particular ethnic group. But anyone who had the local authority to subjugate the peasantry and collect tax was essentially propped up. So in this context, a very powerful tribal landlord class emerged in this sort of tribal uh, part of the terrain. So in both the, the caste Hindu heartland and this tribal area, the mode of production essentially was what Mahesh Regme, the Nepali historian, termed state landlordism. To me, it's a kind of centralised feudalism, where surplus would be taken from the peasants, a portion would be appropriated by the local tax-collecting class, and then the rest would be channeled to Kathmandu. And this is the ruins of the, this is the tax collection office in, in near Bharatnagar in Moran. And in this area, the local zamindar from that area would basically, his functionaries would collect tax from the surrounding villages, bring it to this central location, and then it would be weighed and measured and sent off to Kathmandu. Or it would be sold in India, and then the proceeds would be sent to Kathmandu. This period did see some sort of development of the productive forces. This period saw the construction of a number of huge public works, including these vast ponds, which were built by the Zamindars in both India and in the Nepal side of the border. However, despite that, the, the, irrigation, expand, the irrigation scope was still very, very limited. I mean, this was the device that they used to take water from these ponds into the field. As you can understand, this is going to be an extremely laborious process. So on the whole, agricultural productivity still remained very, very low compared to what it is today. Now there was a big change in the 20th century, and it was really the early 20th century when you began to see the modern form of landlordism, which you see across South Asia. So firstly, land tax, which was once the, the core source of revenue for the feudal regimes of the period, and of course for the British colonial project in the kind of earlier part of the 19th century, this began to decline massively. Uh, in the early 20th century. Now, what were the reasons for this? Well, essentially, it was because the state now had alternative sources of revenue, primarily through imperialism itself. So, for example, um, there was taxation on imports, on trade, there were state monopolies for the export of forest products or natural resources. This was, this was a new source of revenue for the regime. They no longer depended on the tax from the peasants. This period saw the emergence of what you might call a comprador class, a sort of elite in, in the cities essentially served the interests of imperialism, bringing in imported products and selling natural resources to the empire. But what also happened, a byproduct of this change, was that the local landlords, this wasn't in the advantage of the peasants, but the local landlords, the former tax collection bureaucracy, they emerged into becoming the landlord class. So this was essentially the new class of landlords. In the past, they would have to share their surplus between Kathmandu or uh, the Central Colonial Authority and themselves. But today, a much greater share, around this time, a much greater share of the surplus remained within the rural economy and was taken by the landlords. So in the post-colonial period, there wasn't really much change. There was some restricted industrial development, such as low-value agro-processing. A lot of this emerged around the Bharatnagar corridor. However, oral histories point on the whole to a very limited change in the mode of production on the ground and quite severe levels of feudal bondage to landlords. Even migration was actually very, very limited in this period, due again to debt bondage, limited demand for an access to cash and of course the ideological control that the landlords had over the peasantry. And there were actually very limited direct flows of surplus to capitalism, although this economic system was in some ways subjugated to the market. It was very, there were very few people actually engaging in wage labour, for example, for capitalist enterprises. 
So as you go through some of these histories, so in Ikrahi and Tadi village of Damisha, some of the elder respondents from the tenant class recalled the 1960s and the 1970s. Oops, sorry. They noted how several upper-caste landlords held private holdings of up to 60 bigas of land, around 40 hectares, and the judge money system of ritualised exchange between the castes was entrenched, whereby tenants or labourers would work for free for these landlords, only to receive grains of payment during the festivals. Elders recalled that poverty was really, really extreme during this period, and it was recalled that many households did not even have a fire to cook or utensils. If one wanted to go to Janikpur for some official work, they had to borrow formal clothes from the landowner themselves. And it was a similar story south of the border in Madhubani district. So elders recalled how several decades ago, particularly around the 1970s and 80s, the poor farmers were essentially in a perpetual cycle of debt to the zamindars, often taking loans of grain and then repaying them at the harvest time with 1.5 times the borrowed amount plus several days of unpaid labour contribution. The interdependence between landlords and tenants, which was described by the elders, appealed very similar to the kind of Ahmed Baduri's classic model of semi-feudalism from Eastern India in the 1970s, which some of you who have studied agrarian change may be familiar with. So I asked some of these farmers about, well, couldn't they migrate to escape this kind of debt bondage? But what, what the farmers replied was that, well, not only were they bound to work directly for the landlords to repay these consumption loans, they didn't even have cash to pay for the train fare, even if migration was an option. There was also very limited levels of education at the time. People were not aware of what options were available, what opportunities were available outside the village. And they rarely even considered migration as an opportunity. So there was land reforms in this period, and this is again where you begin to see some of the ethnicity issues coming in. So in Nepal, in Bihar there was a wave of land reforms, largely unsuccessful. In Nepal also there was a wave of land reforms, but what this actually saw was a redistribution of land from the tribal landlord class to mostly landlords who were from the hills or from Kathmandu and Varanagar. So the primary losers in the eastern territory, this is a village called Jorahat, uh, which is in Morang, this is a village spent a year when I was doing my PhD research. Now in this community, a lot of the, the, the Tharu landlords, they were the first people to have land confiscated during the land reform period. Because they lacked political power, they lacked access to the bureaucracy, they lacked access to the land reform officials who would be able to you know, help them avoid the reforms. However, there was also a lot of big powerful landlords from Kathmandu and from the hilly region who also had large estates in this area. And these people were able to essentially avoid the reforms. You know, the, the people from the land reform ministry who were conducting the reforms, they were themselves landlords, or they were themselves from the landlord class. So it was very easy to see how these, these hill origin landlords were able to retain their estates. And then they became quite powerful in the subsequent years. A lot of the Tharu landlords, they also lost a lot of land due to deception. Some of the prime real estate inside Ratnagar city, for example. This was often sold at a very, very low price by local Tharu landlords who were not aware of the true value of the land. There was some development of the productive forces during this period. This period saw that in both Bihar and Nepal, the large-scale expansion of canal irrigation, for example, and also the expansion of groundwater. So, you know, previously the only irrigation source were these large ponds. However, with the advent of modern canal systems and with the advent of modern pumping systems, this allowed for a significant increase in productivity. However, this simply served to offset the population growth. So there was not really any significant improvement in the livelihood security or the agrarian output of the region per capita. There was also significant demographic change. 
So in many years ago, in the past, to escape debt bondage, one option which farmers did have sometimes would be to go to the forest belt, clear some forest land and set up their own estate. And this was something which happened, if you look at the history of the Tarai across Nepal, North Bengal and Assam, you saw a lot of movement, particularly of some of the tribal communities, to escape bondage to zamindars by clearing estates in the forest or moving to less populated parts of the Tarai belt. However, this came to an end in the 1960s. There was huge migration from the hills and essentially the forest frontier was saturated. And then there came a point when eventually the government completely stopped any more encroachment on the forest land. However, it should be noted that a lot of the areas which were settled, and these were areas which were settled by hill people, many of these hill people were quite poor themselves, many of them destitute. They migrated and cleared tracts of forest land, but they didn't necessarily displace the indigenous people. This was land which was currently, previously, not cultivated. But what this did do was this ended the, kind of, the safety valve of having the forest there. You know, farmers were not entirely dependent on what little land they had under the feudal system. So, looking now into the 1990s, and I'm going to talk a little bit, little bit about the agrarian crisis which has swept the region. So, first here is the issue of climate change. Now, climate change is a funny one because climate change has been something which has been going on essentially for centuries. I mean, the climate is always changing. But there has definitely been a perception that the last 30 to 40 years have been quite significant, particularly in terms of an increased unpredictability of climate. So farmers felt, particularly during the monsoons, monsoons were often coming later, or they were coming at different kind of times, or they were getting rain at the time they weren't supposed to get rain. So it's quite difficult to put your finger on what these stresses actually are, but I'll briefly review some of the statistical analysis which have been done of climate data. So in the medium term, between 1975 and 2005, there's been an increase in rainfall in the East Terai by around 2 millimetres a year in the pre- and post-monsoon, and an increase of 10 millimetres in the monsoon itself. Now you might think that that's a good thing, but in fact, the increase in intense participation, sorry, precipitation, has actually been paralleled by a lengthening of dry spells and an increase in droughts. So you'll often have, for example, a very, very extreme um, monsoon showers in June, and then around the, the peak planting time during July, there'll suddenly be no rain. And this seems to be a trend which has been increasing a lot over the last 10 to 20 years. And this parallels some of the longer term trends. So, an analysis of the climate in Bihar between 1871 and 2010, it pointed to an increase in rainfall in July, with a decrease in rainfall in the key monsoon months of June, August, and September. So on the whole, it's difficult to put your finger on exactly what is happening, but if you follow the farmer's perceptions, there has been a significant change, and there's a much greater perception of risk. And particularly, this is affecting yields, this is affecting the incentives for farmers to invest on the land. But it's important to know, people often get carried away talking about climate change. Climate is not the only pressure on agriculture. So in the late 1980s, there was economic liberalisation in both Nepal and India, it saw a significant expansion of markets and the monetization of the rural economy. And the primary change during the last 30 years has been this extremely huge increase in the demand for cash. And increases in the demand for cash which were simply not present around 30 to 40 years ago. And this is intricately connected to both the cultural and the economic processes associated <coughs> with neoliberal globalization. So the first is the price of inputs. So the price of agricultural inputs has spiraled since the 1990s. So just to give an example, the price of diesel increased 352% between 1995 and 2010. And this, of course, had a knock-on effect on food prices. It had a knock-on effect on the price of fertilizer. Um, 
linear plant fertilizer to her plot in Bihar. And this, of course, was worsened by the reduction in subsidies. Now, in India, there's still a lot of subsidies available for fertilizer, but these are not present on the Nepal side of the border. So essentially what you're seeing is the terms of trade increasingly stacked against agriculture in the post-liberalization period. But that's not all. There's also the decline of the judge money system in cottage industries and an increased dependence on imported and factory-made goods. Now, this is something you're seeing across Nepal and across parts of Bihar. People who used to purchase you know, earthenware pots such as this now feel that they have to go to the market and purchase metal pots or plastic pots imported from China or the Indian cities. Um, this is partly for cultural reasons and partly to economic reasons because these local artisans simply can't compete anymore. So well, what this is doing is this is increasing, of course, the demand for cash within the household. Then there's a the cultural side of things. There's this consumer culture which has spread across the region over the last 20 to 30 years. Now, dowry has increased exponentially. Now, for example, this is a, this is a Tharu wedding in Jorahat, VDC, in Nepal. Now, in the past, um, at the Tharu wedding, they would be content just to give a couple of cattle or some goats. Now, Tharu weddings, the gifts exchanges are absurd. I mean, there's, there's TVs, you know, furniture, expensive you know, imported goods, utensils, and so on. Really, these costs have increased massively over the last 20 to 30 years. And this is in many ways a cultural process associated with globalization, with the expansion of the media, with the increase in migration and the increase in awareness of the outside world. And then there's also changes in terms of government policies. So under neoliberalism, there's been a shift towards from large-scale agency-managed canal irrigation schemes towards groundwater irrigation. Now, the there's a big difference here. Now, canal irrigation schemes were essentially public use. Everyone would get water so long as they had a land in the command area. But when you shifted towards this decentralized groundwater-allowed um, approach to irrigation, this is essentially groundwater is not scale-neutral. You require an investment. You need to first dig a well, then you need to purchase a pump set. And this, of course, is a considerable expense for marginal and tenant farmers, particularly tenant farmers who don't even have their own land. They're not going to dig too well on land that doesn't belong to them. And then for those who do afford, who are able to afford to dig their own well, there's the problem of energy. So electric tube wells such as this, which are actually very low cost to run, are becoming increasingly unfeasible because, as many of you who have worked in BR or Nepal know, there's a load shedding crisis. I mean, you know, you'll only get electricity from 8 to 10 hours a day. So in this context, farmers generally have to switch towards diesel pumping technologies, and the diesel prices have increased exponentially, although they have decreased a little bit in the last couple of years. This is not really being transmitted to the farmers. So on the whole, you're seeing agriculture becoming essentially unprofitable for both the rich farmers as well as for the poor farmers. So in this context, you see the emergence of the migration economy. So the migration has been something which has been happening for decades, but it's really since the 1990s when most of the farmers said it was the big turning point. This is when migration became institutionalized as essentially an essential component of household livelihoods. So this is Darbanga Junction. This is the major railhead in the central part of Mithila in, in Darbanga district. This is about 50 kilometers south of the Nepal border. And this is a huge hub for migrant workers coming from the Terai and coming from that northern part of Bihar. And they spread out from here across India. There's trains to Chennai, there's trains to Delhi, Mumbai from this railhead. So demand for the cash and the stagnation of local industries means that few marginal and tenant farmers can basically subsist 
without engaging in some kind of seasonal and long-term migration. And then at the same time, on the kind of demand side, you have this rising demand for flexible temporary labour force to serve the Indian capitalist sector and the petro-economies of the Gulf states. So migration, to give an insight into some of the increases, so a survey which was done between 1982 and 1999 in Madhubani, Purnia and Gopal district of Bihar showed that there was an increase from 27.69% to 48.63% in the number of households with migrants. And in Nepal it's been even more staggering. There's been a 4.7 times increase in the number of migrants in the East Central Tarai region between 1980 and 2011, according to the Nepal census. And it's actually likely to be a lot higher because there's a lot of migrants who are not accounted for in the census data. So migration has essentially been male-led. So you did raise some female migration, but it's very, very limited. However, this doesn't mean that, although there's this, you've got this huge migration economy, this doesn't mean that agriculture is not important. In fact, what's happened is that agriculture has basically been feminized. Women are essentially taking control of the land. And there's, of course, in this context, in terms of a gender well-being perspective, there's a huge increase in female workload and a huge increase in costs as well. Women often have to be used in labour-saving technologies such as threshers to offset the labour shortages following the migration of males. This significantly increases the cost of production. So what's the relationship between this rural pre-capitalist economy and capitalism in the context of a migration economy. Well, what I probably want to emphasize is that neither agriculture nor capitalist wage labor can meet household subsistence needs. What you have instead is an articulation of modes of production. You have the pre-capitalist agriculture, even under very, very unfavorable conditions, essentially is meeting the cost of labor reproduction, essentially subsidizing the low-wage capitalist economy. So what this means is that Migrant workers working in the Indian urban centres, they're able to receive a much, much lower wage than they would receive if their entire families relocated and lived in these Indian urban centres, because essentially the household reproduction is met by the farm back home. And this is the critical difference between migration in somewhere like South Asia and the migration which happened in Europe during the Industrial Revolution. In Europe during the Industrial Revolution, entire households would relocate, move to the urban areas. With that, the factories had to increase the wages because they had to meet the whole reproduction of people's families, they had to cover their, their healthcare, their educational needs, and then with that the welfare state began to emerge. However, what you have in South Asia today is totally different. You've got this dual economy where people, where migrant workers work in urban centres, receive very, very low wages which are not enough to support their families because but they can still get by because agriculture essentially subsidises the migrant labour force. Okay, so that's what it means for capitalism. What does it mean for this feudal economy back in the village? Is migration actually undermining feudalism? Well, I would argue it's not. Well, feudal relations do not appear to be in decline. In fact, if you look at what might cause a transition from the feudal system to capitalism, what you would expect is that landlords would start investing on the land, they start investing in improved inputs, they start employing labourers, not as tenants, but actually as wage labourers on the land. But this is actually not happening. In fact, the opposite is actually taking place. Because of the terms of trade, which is stacked against agriculture, because of climate stress, many of these landlords actually prefer to rent out their land rather than farming it capitalistically. 
And there's a significant rise also in absentee landlordism, as many of the large landowners seek opportunities in Kathmandu or Indian cities, yet still retain their estates back in the village. Now this doesn't mean that there is not been some decline. There has been a little bit of a decline in landlordism in some pockets of the Terai, now, particularly in the Damasha region. In fact, a lot of the caste Hindu heartland in the Nepal Terai is actually an area where landlordism has been in decline for the last 20 to 30 years. So many of these landlords, they don't see much value in the land. They've got jobs you know, in, Indian, in Indian cities or in Kathmandu. And they're beginning to see that, you know, why do I need to retain these estates in the countryside? There's also the fragmentation of holdings, large families, how holdings become fragmented about amongst multiple sons. So this is a, to give one case study, this is a, a Krahi village in Danusha. Now this was actually home to a powerful Bengali Brahmin landlord who was brought in by the Ranas during the 19th century. Now they were brought in because it was felt that, you know, that these Bengali landlords had the, the education level and the capacity to manage a feudal estate, which some of the indigenous peasants didn't have. So they were brought in and they emerged into quite very, very powerful landlords throughout the early part of the 20th century. However, recently most of these people have left, most of the land has been sold. There was also a lot of local class struggle, particularly during the Maoist War, where these landlords essentially brought this economic system to an end in this particular village. And this is actually the ruins of what used to be the Haveli in the Krahi village. However, land, I should admit, although there is the decline in landlordism in these areas, land is, is not actually being sold to the landless farmers. So there's not really much redistribution. In fact, what seems to be happening is that some of the better off, the richer farmers and middle farmers are buying up these declining landlord estates. But on the whole, actual landlessness is actually increasing. So, I mean, this is the data from the Eastern Central Terai from the Nepal Living Standard Survey. In 1995-2010, there's a gradual increase in the percentage of landless households as well as the percentage of tenant and pure tenant households. And then the percentage of people owning land is actually declining. And then similar in Bihar, this is the percentage of landless households. Again, steady increase from 1971 up to 2002, though a little bit of a dip since the 1990s. So I should emphasise that the decline in landlordism is very much localised to the central terrain and is shaped by a range of factors including, as I said, past class struggles such as the Maoist movement in Nepal, the quality of the land, whether they had access to irrigation and of course the political power of the landlords themselves. So in the well irrigated and the higher rainfall regions of the Terai, there's very, still a lot of very powerful Hilaras and landlords which have retained vast estates. So areas such as Morangs and Saturday, an area where they've got access to canal irrigation, there's been no evidence at all that landlords are actually selling off their estates in this area. They sold huge estates. And there's also some pockets uh, in this sort of caste Hindu heartland, such as the, the Koshi floodplains is one of the few areas where there's still a bit of a Medishi landlord class. And of course in Bihar, to the south, there's actually been very limited change. In fact, the landlords are still extremely powerful in Bihar. So this is Vaudha, this is a village in Morang. This is about seven kilometers northeast of Baratnagar. Here, the survey we did showed that 70% of the land is under tenancy. And this land is mostly to absentee landlords. These are mostly hill Brahmins from Kathmandu and Baratnagar who have inherited this land since the Rana period. And then these are, this is a predominantly Rajmanchi village who work as tenants on these large estates. 
And then over the border in Bihar, this is a fairly typical village in Bihar, Mahwahi in Madhubani district. 60% of the land here is, is under tenancy. It's rented from both local Brahmin landlords as well as some of the Brahmin and upper caste landlords who've migrated to Patna and Delhi and other urban centres, yet still retain their estates in the countryside. And to give an insight into the agrarian structure, I and mean, this is the survey we did of 14 villages between 2013 and 2015, um, you can see that it's still very much skewed agrarian structure. Down here you've got your landless labourers, you've got your tenant households, your part tenants, the very marginal landholders, and then here are your bigger farmers who've got more than two hectares of land. On the whole, it's very highly skewed, except, I, I should add, Danusha district in Nepal, which is in this kind of Madeshi heartland. Here, this is one of the areas where there's been a decline in landlordism. In this area, you're seeing a, a much greater proportion of land belonging to the kind of middle farmers the median peasants in this area, and a much smaller, much lower levels of landlessness. Now this doesn't mean that there's not been... Okay, so you can see that landlordism in some areas has declined, and in other areas it's remained almost the same. But this doesn't mean that there hasn't been change. In fact, there's been significant change in the production relations. So indebtedness, for example, has continued to rise. As I mentioned before, the demand for cash has increased exponentially over the last 20 to 30 years, and people are in incredible amounts of debt. So, for example, the average debt in Madhubani in our survey was $770. This is the average outstanding debt. And in Danusha, it was $1,200. So, you know, this is a considerable sum of money in somewhere like that. And there's actually a London money lending class which is flourishing. But there has been a big change. And this change is essentially that credit, land and labour contracts are no longer interlinked like they were in the past. So in the past you would have one landlord and he would also be the big money lender who would give out loans to the farmers. That's changed today. With some of the landlords declining, some of the landlords selling their estates, you've got a rise of a kind of new elite of some of the kind of large farmers, for example. And they're often becoming enriched today through money lending. But it's not just because of this. There's also a, cha a break in some of the ideological ties of bondage between landlords and tenants. So, for example, the judgmani system, which was a very much ritualised exchange between the castes, has almost died out entirely in Bihar and in the Terai. And this is breaking some of the ideological ties between landlords and tenants. So, lots of tenants, for example, they no longer feel, feel bounded to go to their landlord to take loans. They can often shop around and take loans from other people, such as moneylenders in the bazaar, for example. But as I noted before, rather than the landlord showing any form of capitalist development, there's actually a contraction of investment, and large farmers, um, and, sorry, a contraction of investment by both landlords and by large farmers, and that's a significant increase in the kind of rent-seeking economy. So, for example, as I mentioned before, landlords increasingly prefer to rent out their land rather than hiring wage labourers, essentially sharing the risk with the tenants. And then agricultural equipment purchases can often be deceptive. So, for example, you'll see this profusion of pump sets and tractors in the community. Now, anyone who looks at this might think that this is a sign of capitalistic development. But in fact, it's actually the opposite. What's happening is that landlords whose estates have reached the limits of their expansion, they start diversifying into purchasing agricultural equipment. So there'll be one landlord who will own all the pump sets in the community. And then they'll rent out these pump sets at extortionate rates. And again, that's a new source of rent for the landlord class. So how do you, how do you understand... Right, so I've kind of established the agrarian system in this region up to the present, and some of the pressures on agriculture. 
how do you describe, how do you understand the rise of ethnic politics in the Tarai Madesh region? So, to look at the history of political change, there has been a, a, a huge amount of political upheaval over the last 30 years. You can see it as a sort of political awakening. And again, most of the farmers put this down to around about the 1990s. A significant change in their... So this may be linked in part to the declining power of some of the landlords, or the breakdown in some of these ideological ties of bondage. And on the same time, this political awakening may itself have contributed to the breakdown of some of these ideological ties between landlords and tenants. But to give some example, Nepal, of course, as many of you know, had the Maoist People War between 1996 and 2006. And then in Bihar to the south, there was the rise of the kind of populist caste-based politics. Now, despite the, the problems of the massive corruption which emerged during this period, many farmers actually viewed this period quite favourably because this was the time when the authorities of caste were challenged under the likes of Lalu Yadav and some of his cronies. There was um, a rise in the power of the middle castes who sort of, you know, they began to challenged the Brahmin authority. And there was an increased assertiveness of peasants amongst this period. Now, the caste politics in North Bihar are very clear links to class reproduction. This challenged the economic dominance of the upper castes and then also reinforced the power of the new middle caste elite. And then again, of course, the Nepal People's War, that was again very, very strongly linked to class relations in agriculture. So, for example, the tenants and labourers across the Terai, particularly in the tribal areas, were quite significantly mobilised. And in some areas, such as Morang, many of these tenants also tried to seize some of the land belonging to these big hill absentee landlords. So it was a very clear link between class mobilisation, sorry, between political mobilisation and the class relations on the ground. So how do you understand the shift towards ethnic politics which has taken place over the last 10 years? Well, firstly, there's the issue of land, control over land. So as in, in the Adivasi areas, in the tribal areas, there is a very clear convergence between class and ethnicity. So for example, amongst the Thari community in Morang and Chintari, there's the bitter memories of land reform, where land was passed over to politically connected landed elites who avoided the reform. And then of course the further loss of land due to debt and deception in the following years. And this saw a sort of concentration of land in this belt amongst absentee landlord classes many of whom had links to Kathmandu or from the hills. Then there's the issue of the citizenship laws. Now, reactionary citizenship laws has perpetuated landlessness amongst some Dalit and even some Thai Adivasi groups. So, this is Baudhad village again in Morang. Now, this is a village around about, around about 10 years ago, the vast majority of the, of the Bantar community, this is a, an indigenous group from the very localised part of Morang district in the eastern Terai, now, this community mostly were completely devoid of citizenship until around 2006 when they had a citizenship distribution campaign. Now, citizenship exclusion, for those of you who are not familiar, in Nepal, Nepal has some of the most draconian citizenship laws in the world, and exclusion from citizenship has often been one of the other ways to which some of the ethnic minority groups, particularly in the Tarai region, have been excluded from land. But this doesn't really answer our question. So if you look at the, the heartland of the ethnic unrest in the Tarai, has actually not been in the tribal areas. It's actually been in the caste Hindu heartland. It's been in the Madeshi areas, in the central Tarai. So how do we explain the primary support base of the Andolan in this part? Because this is an area which has its own landed elite. There's not a clear-cut clear 
division between, uh, sorry, clear-cut correlation between your ethnicity and your class in this area. So there is a very, very small military landlord class which still persists, but they have a very marginal role in the movement. And their research on the ground showed that the primary support base for that endowment is actually amongst the middle castes, and particularly the middle farmers, and to some extent some of the large farmers, although this does have tacit support also from the landless farmers. So poor... So what I would probably want to table here is that the poor, medium and large farmers have all been affected by agrarian stress. So in some ways these divisions within the farming population are probably declining slightly. And you have this sort of convergence of interests due to this, you know, climate stress, this terms of trade increasingly stacked against agriculture. And let's just give one example. So as I think I've made it clear that for many of the poorer farmers, they've been very, very severely affected by this climate change. They're entering the migrant labour economy uh, in much greater indebtedness than they've ever been affected before. So what's the case for the middle and large farmers? Well, what's happening is they're essentially entering this educated, unemployed reserve army. There are very, very few opportunities for the middle and large farmers in agriculture, or at least they perceive very, very few opportunities due to climate stress, poor returns, and not to mention this sort of cultural globalisation which is going on, where people are increasingly looking for horizons outside the farm. But then they also see very, very few opportunities in the bureaucracy or the private sector. In the Madesh region, there's the absence of the kind of quota system which they have in India, which gives some of the more marginalised communities an increased opportunity. This doesn't really exist in Nepal, so many of them in this community feel doubly excluded. And this, this group, it's actually the kind of this educated unemployed who in many ways are the kind of forefront of the struggle in Nepal. But then there's also much more complex processes at play, and this is, I think, where we really need much more research. There's been a greater spatial disparity within Nithilanchal and in Nepal itself throughout the 1990s and 2000s, which may have worsened the perceptions of ethnic and regional subordination. So in the sort of Madeshi heartland, in the area around Janipur, there's been a complete capital flight, essentially. Like, Janipur has seen the closure of almost all its industries. There's been a breakdown in state services, a breakdown in public spending. And even in Bharatnagar, which was once one of the more prosperous parts of the Terra Belt, there's been a huge decline in industries. 40 units closed down from 2009 to 2014. And, been a, and as I said, there's been a complete closure of industries in cities such as Rajbaraj and Janipur and a dearth of opportunities in the industrial serv or service sector, for that matter, outside of the Kathmandu area. So this in part may be, of course, due to the pressures of neoliberal globalisation that many of these industries simply can't compete anymore in the open market. But there, I mean, there's also new patterns of resource distribution and concentration which are emerging in Nepal. There's been a profusion of what you might call a sort of Dalal economy, a middleman economy, and this offers significant scope for further research. So there's new sources of revenue for the political bureaucratic elites, such as cartels and service delivery and goods distribution. There's the manpower sector, which absorbs a portion of the migrant labour income. Then there's foreign aid. And then there's this patron-client-based political party system since the 1990s, which mediates the distribution of these revenue sources at the local level. Yet what it does mean for the concentration and distribution of resources nationally and the growing gulf between Kathmandu and the peripheral Tara districts is really the big un unanswered question. So this new kind of middleman-based economy, is this increasing the concentration of resources? Is this increasing the concentration of resources where the political power is, such as Kathmandu? And just to give you 
I mean, this, when I was doing my PhD research some time ago, I, I came up with this diagram to show the economy under the Rana regime in the 19th century. It's very easy to understand in many ways. You've got you know, your, the peasant masses at the bottom, then you've got this network of intermediaries, and all the surplus is sort of channeled amongst the Rana state at the centre. Now, recently, my colleague um, Jacob Rink and I, we, we tried to map the contemporary Nepali economy, and we came up with this, something a lot more complex. So yes, you've got your feudal system here, you've got your peasants, tenants, labourers, you've got your landlords, but then you've also got their articulation with capitalism, with local industry, with the foreign industry, and then you've got this huge sort of middleman economy of moneylenders, merchants, cartels, syndicates, manpower agencies, the political parties, the bureaucracy, everyone you know, taking their share of the loot. And then you've got new sources of revenue coming in as well, such as you've got foreign aid, coming into the economy. But what I'm trying to, what I'm trying to say here is I'm, this is very, very cursory and very, very, this is just a brainstorming which we did. This is not based upon any concrete economic analysis. But what I'm trying to say is that the economy has become a lot more complex in countries such as Nepal. And to that respect, in areas such as Bihar as well, it's simply becoming much more difficult to understand these flows of surplus, these flows of resources. And I think by understanding these resource flows, we can also much better understand some of the political struggles in places such as Nepal, particularly when it comes to questions of federalism and questions of ethnic divisions and the distribution of resources between different ethnic groups. So in conclusion, the history of Mithilangel over the last four centuries has been marked by the perpetuation of landlordism, but with dynamic and evolving relations between the small farmer and tenant class and the landed elite. But in Nepal, there's also been a new wave of agrarian stress linked to climate stress and imperialism, which is combined with the persisting ethnic disparities in the distribution of resources and power. And this is affecting the fortunes of both the land poor farmers as well as the middle and large cultivators, which is somewhat complicating some of the traditional class divisions. However, understanding these new patterns of exclusion really needs a renewed analysis of the larger political economy of Nepal and an emerging system of resource distribution which is not clearly feudal or capitalist. And I think it's on that point I'd like to end. We really need to try and understand this much bigger political economy at a national scale today, more than ever before. Thank you.